Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 16th, 2015 at Preservation Hall in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is weddings. This is the first wedding I ever attended. It's not the subject of my story, but I just have to tell this story. I see in the audience people I know. I see people from both my family and the family I married into. So it's really uh, it's neat to be in Wellfleet. The very first wedding I attended, um, we had a live-in babysitter. Um, she was getting married. Um, and my brother, my younger brother and I, were given the special role in this wedding as the kids of the people who she babysat to be ring bearers in this wedding. I think I was six, maybe, and my little brother was five. And so we got all dressed up like we'd never been dressed up before. We got to the, uh, I think it was Episcopal Church, um, and we were given these little white pillows, and the rings were put on those pillows which is a tremendous responsibility. So I had two responsibilities. One was not to drop the ring and have it rolling under the pews and stuff like that. The other was to steward my younger brother. You know, I felt responsible for him. I still feel responsible for him. So anyways, there the two of us were in our shorts and our suspenders and with our, our pillows coming up the aisle. Uh, obviously the most important people in this wedding. And the entire time we were walking up the aisle, my little brother had a problem. And what it was was, well, he whispered to me at least 30 times, I need to go to the bathroom. Jim, I need to go to the bathroom. I need to go to the bathroom now. And no, there were no accidents, but I just want to say that since he is out in the audience tonight, (laughs) that if you need to go to the bathroom, Dan, our state senator, Um, you can go ahead, go now before uh, I get into the story, so. Uh, I still feel the responsibility of taking care of my brother. Uh, um, This is uh, the unknown, the great unknown. Um, That's what weddings are. They're the great unknown. They're the coming together of two families, by definition, dysfunctional, um, into a union uh, where they will learn about the unknown. So, you know, I fell in love with Cape Cod. I'm from a Jewish Philadelphia family. Um, Came up here beginning in the early 60s. My folks bought a house in Chatham, a beautiful place up on a hill with a commanding view, and we were Cape Codders. Ha ha. Anyways, uh, uh, cut forward about uh, 35 years. I'm a bachelor. I meet this, I'm living on Cape Cod. I meet this lovely Wellfleetian from the Payne family. And if you've been around a Wellfleet, um, you can't help but have run into some pains. With, that's with an E. You know, I, Irene and I have been married now for close to 20 years, and you know, if she ever drops the E, she well knows I'm gone. So our wedding took place. So really, this is about a marriage, a wedding between a wash ashore and somebody who comes from ancestral Cape Cod, barring Native Americans, okay, on that one. I think her family did some machinations with the, uh, I won't get into that. Okay. (laughs) So anyways, um, our wedding took place on a hill in Chatham, my ancestral home, which is one generation. 
my family were Jewish immigrants from, uh, from Europe, and there was never a piece of land that ever got passed from one generation to the next, ever. And her family was a Cape Cod family that had ancestral land, lots of ancestral land, and it's still here in Wellfleet, as are, I don't know how many panes, dozens. So we're, we all go up there to um, Chatham. It was a small wedding because Irene had been married before, and I was a bachelor at 41. All my brothers and sisters had had weddings, and we thought, let's take it easy on the families. We won't have a lot of people there. It was a small wedding. Irene's folks came from Wellfleet. Couple, uh, Dan, Dan, my brother Dan came with his family from Cape Cod, but it was small. And at some point during that wedding on the hill in Chatham, after the service, I think, when people were eating little cakes and things like that, um, Bob Payne, um, Irene's dad, my new father-in-law, took me aside and, and got me to the edge of the lawn, away from the lookout where you looked out onto this beautiful Pleasant Bay, this incredible water scene, down the other side, and he said, Jim, I need you to show me the bounds. And I didn't really know what he was talking about, frankly. I had never really thought about bounds that much. But he was insistent that I show him the boundaries of the property that his family was marrying into or had just married into. So, um, you know, I said, well, it's the water over there and the high line or the low water line. I had to give that a little bit of thought, but he pointed to a very overgrown patch between my folks' house and the next door neighbor's house, and he said, show me the bounds down there. So it was, it was very overgrown, and I, I finally decided, okay, we're gonna go look for bounds. I said, Bob, what do they look like? And he said, well, it could be a, a, a rock or an old stump from a very old tree or a piece of concrete on the ground. So we bushwhacked into this, this space between my parents' house and the next door neighbor's property. And we never did find anything. And I think I'm still uh, searching this day for what bounds are. Whenever Irene and I have bought a house since then, she's always hired a surveyor to put bounds in, but I, I still don't know where they are. So we came down to Provincetown after the wedding, which was beautiful. We got onto a Cape Air plane. Uh, it was late April. We took off from Provincetown, and all we could see were spouting whales. It was a great start as we went to New Orleans, to Louisiana. And um, when we got to Louisiana, we stayed in a wonderful place uh, called the, I think it was called the Peach Tree, maybe something like that. And it was just a, a couple of bungalows on a beautiful piece of property in St. Francisville Parish. We were going in for the uh, jazz festival in a couple days, and we're there. And we have our honeymoon night. And I won't really get into that, because this is about weddings. But uh, it was fun. Thank you, Irene, for that. I, I still remember that. Um, and about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and I was itching all over. And I have to say that, you know, Irene had been married before, and I, it, is that it? Oh, okay. And it took some convincing uh, to get Irene to marry me, bachelor Jew from Philadelphia. Um, and basically what she had said to me is, I don't want to marry you if you're going to change. 
I've been married before, and the man changed the day after the wedding. So I had promised her that I was not going to change, okay? I thought that was a little thing. I was 41 years old. I wasn't going to change much anymore. And so I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm itching all over, and I get up quietly, and I get into the bathroom, and I switch on the light, and I look in the mirror, and I, my head is twice the size of my head normally. And I look like the elephant man. And so, um, you know, I was re really feeling bad. Irene took charge of the situation, even though she wasn't in her ancestral home. She identified poison ivy and poison sumac and poison oak, all three. Uh, thanks to dad. And she took me by the hand and led me to a one-room hospital in St. Francisville and got a, got, she left the room while I got a shot in my buttocks. And we were able to continue our honeymoon. Thank you, honey. You're so good when you're away from the ancestral lands. <laughs> so, you know, we come back from our honeymoon and about two weeks after we got back, I got a phone call from Bob Payne. And by the way, Bob Payne's still around. And if any of you haven't been down into Payne Hollow, go and say, where is he now? He's in Payne Hollow. Go down there to the, to the four-way stop and catty corner to you. That's the old Payne household. And Bob is there, and he'd love to see you. I'm sure he would. Um, he called me up on the telephone, and he said, Jim, I need to see you. I got something for you. So I said, okay, Bob, I'm coming right over. And I'm thinking, you know, ancestral land, I married his daughter, you know, Chatham's a long way away, it's not going to be passed down in the family, you know, because nothing gets passed down in our families. And I'm thinking, Bob's he's going to give me an acre in Wellfleet. <laughs> right. So I get down there, and he's standing outside this nondescript shed, which he calls the Black Shop. It's because it's got tar paper on the, on the roof. And he says, inside. So I follow him inside. He says, up there. And he had me climb a very difficult ladder up into a loft. And spread out in this loft were implements of making a living on Cape Cod going back, I don't know, 150 years? All kinds of farm implements, fishing implements. And I'm rooting around in there, and I'm holding things up. Is this it, Bob? No, that's not it. Keep looking, kid. So finally, I come up with uh, a round piece of wood with a couple of metal things on it. I have no idea what it is. I hold it out over the edge, and he says, you got them, boy. Bring them down. There were two of them. So I struggled down the ladder with them. I brought them down. I'm holding them. And he says, boy, I want you to have them. And I'm like, looking at what I have in my hands and thinking about an acre in Wellfleet, thinking this is my wedding present. Um, Thanks, Bob. Thanks very much. And he looked at me, and he got this look on his face like he was so crestfallen because he realized that his son-in-law didn't have the faintest idea what he was giving him. And he said, boy, you don't know what they are, do you? And I said, no, Bob, I don't know what they are. And he says... They're bog boots. <laughs> and of course, I said, ah. And he said, you don't know what they're for, do you? And I said, what are they for, Bob? And he said, well, when you go out on the chocolate mayonnaise and you have to cut the salt grasses, 
the sea marsh grasses for fodder for your animals. You put these on the hooves of the horses so they don't sink into the chocolate mayonnaise. They're mud shoes for the horses. And I said, ah, oh, Bob, thank you so much. And he looked at me and he said, he could see I was a little bit disappointed, a little bit. And he said, well, you never know when they'll come in handy. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, Bob, they're going to come in handy the next time I have to go out on the marshes with my horse and cut some salt hay. Never. And he looked at me and he said, no, Jim, I mean you never know when they're going to come in handy for storytelling. Thank you very much. Next wonderful storyteller is Alex Gassoon. Um, I realized that today uh, when I saw the theme for tonight. Um, but it turns out, as I was going through the list in my head, that all the friends I know who have gotten married have done it in a way to specifically not have a wedding. For instance, like, you know, the county clerk or Elvis impersonator, or as a political statement in one case. Um, but I do have a story about love conquering all. And it didn't happen to me, but I seem to be the only person who knows about it. So I feel like it's a personal story. Um, I looked it up in the book I have today to confirm that it actually happened so that I, at least I would obey that part of the rules for this. Um, but I tried to Google it, and for, it's hard to Google for reasons that will become clear. So we have to go back in time to a period where marriage was valued more, during the Crusades. <laughs> With a brief digression into horse biology. Um, horses, like many mammals, go through periods in which the female is fertile, and the male has a desire to mate. In horses, this is caused by pheromones, things that they smell. Now, the Crusades were between European Christians and Muslims. I'm sure everybody knows that. But the key thing is that the knights used... Most people who have ridden horses into war don't do this. In fact, they're the only ones I know about who do, who ride uncastrated stallions into battle because they're aggressive and they're hot-blooded and that appealed to the knights. And the Muslims rode mostly Arabian mares because they were agile. <laughs> and the Muslims, they were mostly horse archers, so they wanted a horse that could turn around quick and bolt. And the Crusaders were knights in shining armor, as you imagine them, huge and weighed 200 pounds. And so they needed gigantic horses Anyway, so this, there was a battle. I forget what it was or where it was exactly. But um, there were about 10,000 guys, about 5,000 horses on each side, and the Muslim mares had been stabled together for longer than was usual for another reason I forgot. I was going to bring the book. It's the first, you know, it's a primary source. It's a memoir of the Crusades. <laughs> And this is only like a paragraph long in that, so a lot of this is me imagining it, but seriously, I can't find it anywhere else. <laughs> I 
And I've never brought this up to anyone who's ever heard of it, so it's mine. That's my justification. Anyway, um, so the, the mares had all gone into heat, is the point. And um, so when the knights tried to charge, at first it seemed to be going well, and then it devolved into a giant, massive horse orgy. And thousands, thousands died. But they, they were already going to, it was a battle. Um, and you know, like, well, you know, you've probably seen nature documentaries, how horses mate, so imagine that you're like, you're a Muslim soldier, and you know, you, you, you try to do the thing where you shoot at the charging your, you know, Christians and then turn around and run, but your horse isn't actually interested in getting away. And, um, man, before you know it, their horse is up, on, you're sitting on the back, you've got to scramble, like, because there's also a thousand pounds of knight on top. <laughs> the knight tries to get himself off to go fighting, and anyway, it all just... Anyway, and that is, to me, <laughs> the single best thing that has, like, ever happened since the beginning of time. Um, there's also a really funny little bit in the, God, I really didn't mean to bring the book, I forgot it, of his, his um, exegesis of this, his, his spin of why God made this happen. Like, Why? <laughs> Why did this insane thing happen? <laughs> um, he doesn't get very far. I kind of think that that's why it's not in, it's not like historically known about, because who could put an interpretation on it? I mean, really. <laughs> so, love, horse love, <laughs> conquered even religious hatred. All right. That's it. Good night. Please welcome to the stage my friend David. <laughs> How's that? Thank you. Just occurred to me, I've, uh, I've actually never addressed a group this large who's named in, and in anonymous, so it's, it's great to be here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like I kind of got scammed into this, uh, Vanessa. Uh, never told me what the theme was, so asking me to tell my favorite wedding story, it's like asking, you know, Robert Shaw what his favorite shark story was. Um, also, I, I didn't know there'd be like 10-year-old kids in the audience. So, listen, you know, when you go back to school, make sure when the teacher says, what did you do this summer? Uh, relate that castrating horse story. That'll go over really big. Um, so I, uh, I had, uh, sorry, I had, uh, I, I had the, I had a horribly hilarious wedding. I had a fantastic divorce. Um, the eight years in the middle were not good, but the, the wedding was, Memorable. I married a woman. I, I just, I just, we couldn't stand each other, you know, but I was, and I don't know how many people can relate to this, but uh, I was 39 and most of my friends had been married like two or three times already, kids and everything. And I'd never been married. I had a series of five-year relationships and uh, 
I thought that was okay, but at 39, I started to feel ridiculous. So I met uh, a woman who was feeling ridiculous as well, and she was, she was 29, and so uh, we decided to get married. And, you know, I, marriage is a weird thing in my family. Uh, my parents wound up being married for 61 years, and uh, they got married during the Holocaust in Nazi-occupied Holland, and they were completely incompatible, completely, nothing in common. And I once asked my dad, uh, why'd you marry her? And he said, well, you know, the, the Nazis had invaded Holland, and I figured we had the most three days to live. <laughs> Tops. And, uh, you know, and, and I thought that, that, made, that made sense. And... Uh, so I, I felt, you know, I felt similarly, and so, uh, and and my wedding was a, it was a farce. I mean, so my ex-wife was an ex-Mormon, and I am an Orthodox atheist Jew, and so nobody would marry us. So I wound up finding a mayor of a very famous town in New Jersey. Um, and he was very famous uh, for being uh, a drunk and under indictment at the time. And, uh, you know, which was an exquisite choice, I thought, you know. And uh, so the wedding day arrives and uh, I introduce, introduce the mayor to my future ex-wife and, uh, and he's slurring his words. And she looks at me like, I'm going to fucking kill you. Uh, and uh, so this, this ceremony starts, and he gets sick. And, and I'm sorry, kids. There's just no other way of putting this. You know, he throws up all over himself. And uh, yeah, and, uh, and a couple of maids of honor. And... Uh, and there was something else going on, too. It was a really bad smell. And my, my wife is crying. My future ex-wife is crying. And I can't stop laughing. And my father thought it was hilarious, too. My mother did not. And, uh, and so I just wanted to put in that plug for marriage. Um, thank you. Welcome to the stage. Can we please have Dan Silverman? Woo! Good evening. Um, I met the love of my life in 1982. Uh, we didn't start dating until about five months later in 1983. And when we first met, um, she was still living up in Boston. I was here in Wellfleet. And we didn't really think about getting married uh, for a while, but after a couple of years, um, she said, we started, we started to talk about it, and she said, well, if we're still together after five years, uh, maybe, maybe we'll think about it. So uh, four years later, four years after we started dating, she was actually able to move down to the Cape. She found a job um, here uh, on the Cape, so we, we got to be living together, uh, which was great as opposed to having a commuter relationship. And after five years, um, we looked at each other, and I don't know who said it, but one of us said, well, it's, it's been five years, do you think you're ready? And the other one said, no, I'm not really sure. And then a couple of maybe months later, 
the other one, I, again, I don't remember the sequence of how this happened. The other one said, well, you know, I think I'm ready now. And whoever the other one was at that time said, well, mm, I don't know. It's, we're, we're doing all right the way it is. So maybe we'll just leave it alone. And this went on for a, for a while. Um, a while being another three years. Um, and it's at one point, uh, one of us said, you know, I think I am ready to get married. And the other one said, yeah, I think I am too. And we suddenly looked at each other and we realized, oh my God, we're going to get married. So we were at this point uh, both in our 40s and we realized we were going to have to pay for this wedding ourselves. We were not, um, this was not something, you know, where your, your, your parents are going to pay for. We were adults um, and uh, we knew where we wanted to get married. There was one restaurant here in town where we had gone for brunch. Uh, almost every every Sunday when we were first courting, and it was, it's a lovely setting. Um, it's not there anymore, but um, we decided that that's where we wanted to get married. But we we needed to have some sense of what we how we had to budget for this. So we called up the uh, man who ran the restaurant, and we said we wanted to come in and talk to him. So we sat down with him, and we said we want to uh, plan an event, and we want to get an idea uh, from you of what the costs are. And he said, all right. He said, can you tell me a little bit about this event? He said, is this event going to be the kind of event where you invite people from out of town? And we said, yeah. He said, and you know, you're going to want to like feed them and you know maybe have a party afterward. And we said, yeah, that's 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 what we're talking about. He said, does this event have a name? <laughs> and without any prior thought, uh, without any communication, we both looked at him and simultaneously said, Fred. I can't tell you now why we said that. I can't tell you where that came from. But from then on, our wedding became known as Fred. And we have a box at home. We, we, we had the Fred file. We have a whole box at home that's referred to as the Fred file. And the postscript to the story is that when we found out how much it was going to cost, we asked him not to say a word to anybody because we were going to have to put it off for a while and save up for it. Um, but we did eventually go ahead with Fred uh, about a year later. It was a wonderful event. And I'm very happy to tell you that next month, Fred will be 25 years old. Thank you. Okay, next to the stage, please welcome Helen Jacobson. Helen. So this is about my second marriage. And um, I was about... 37, and I was divorced with three children, ages uh, uh, 3, uh, 10, and 12. And I was dating an older professor, quite well known in the Boston area, though I had not known who he was, And when, when I met him. And for two years, we went out, and every Friday night, we went to this restaurant over the Mass Turnpike, and he said, I'm never getting married. And I said, that's fine, and you're never living with me because I have three children. And this went on for almost two years, and one day he arrived and he said, I sold my condo. And I said, well, where are you going? And he said, here, we're getting married. And I said, is that the proposal? And he's, he said, yes. And I said, he said, but you know, to me, a wedding is a funeral. I said, what? He said, all my life I've thought that getting married is like dying. So I said, well, that's a happy note. 
So he said, but I would like where he taught at BU, he said, I would like the Hillel rabbi to marry us. I like him and whatever. So I said, fine, I don't care. So we go over and we sit in the office and the rabbi turns to me and he goes, you're divorced, right? And I said, right. And he said, well, do you have a get? And I said, a get? What's a get? And he said, your ex-husband has to go before a board of rabbis in Boston and divorce you. And I said, not happening. So uh, at that point, we left the office. And I said, wait a minute. I go to this very loose temple in Newton. And it's not barely reformed. I bet they'll marry us. So the next thing, we're with the rabbi who says, of course, I'll marry you. And we're sitting there. And my fiancé says, I have one problem. And the rabbi says, what is it? He says, I think I'm going to faint. When, what's going to happen if I faint when you marry us? And the guy goes, don't worry about it. When you wake up, you'll be married. <laughs> and so, so I'm sitting there going, I'm marrying this person who is, you know, like, that's what he's asking the rabbi. Okay. So then... We have a dinner, and my parents come from New York, and I can tell my father's having a little trouble with the fact that this man is only about 10 years younger than he, but we have, anyway, we're talking about the wedding, and Murray announces to his mother, who's in her 80s, and to my parents, that nobody will be there during the ceremony. We'll have a party, but nobody will be there. And at this point, his mother starts to cry. And we're sitting there, and the tears are pouring down. And my mother, who is not at all shy, says, nobody's marrying my daughter without me. And that's it. She says, Charlotte, forget it. We're going to be there. So suddenly, we have this small chapel, and we start inviting about 50 people to come, and then about another 100 people for a party afterwards at our big new house where the kids and I have moved in with him. And, you know, we hire a caterer, we get music, we organize the whole thing. My sister comes to town. Everyone is staying with us in the house. It's total chaos. And the day of the wedding comes, and I'm running around. It's October. It's very cold. And I've decided you'll put the drinks here, and you'll do this there, and this will happen. And the catering people say, it's too cold. Where's the heat? And I'm rushing around finding space heaters, and I'm putting them up in places and whatever. And I finally get them all settled, and I look around. No one is in the house with me. No one. I am totally alone. Everyone has left for the wedding. Not a single person remembered me. Not my, not my kids, not my sister, not my husband-to-be. Nobody. They're all gone. This is before cell phones. And I'm standing there going, do I call a cab? I'm not quite sure what to do, because I also don't have a car now. They've taken all the cars. And I'm standing there, and the doorbell rings. And I open the door, and there's this guy from New York who's a friend of Murray's, Jesse something, a union guy or whatever. And he says, I'm early, but I drove from New York. I'm early. I said, you're fine. You're taking me to the wedding. He said, I wasn't invited to the wedding. I'm only invited to the party. I said, Jesse, uh, you are taking me to the wedding or I won't get there. So we get to the wedding, and I come in. Meanwhile, by the way, no one is yet looking for me. So, I mean, no one. And the rabbi comes over to me, and he starts screaming, you're late. And I looked at him speechless, 
like I'm late. Okay, so I then start going, running down the aisle, literally, almost, because the people are assembled, and I realize that Murray's brother is standing next to him, and I think I'm supposed to have someone standing. So I grabbed my sister's arm, and I said, Margo, come up with me. And she said, what? To do what? And I said, just get up here with us. So anyway, she became my person, and he had his person, and we're standing there, and the rabbi's going on and on and on and on, and suddenly the room started turning, and I started to faint. And at that point, I remember Murray's brother hit me in the face to wake me up. Now, if he hadn't hit me, I would have probably ended up on the ground. But I wasn't exactly thrilled, you know, at that particular moment to be hit. Now, the wedding ended, and I insisted that the kids join us for a picture. I, my whole idea had been we'd be with the kids. I had all this romantic thing, but none of that happened. Uh, anyway, um, to so to end this, I had asked that we spend that night, the wedding night, not in our house, where I knew I'd wake up in the morning to a, a wet bed from the three-year-old, ten people to cook pancakes for, and God knows what. And I said, I want to go somewhere tonight. And he said, oh, you're just like a, you know, a Jewish American princess. We have a big house. Why do we have to leave? I said, because I don't want to wake up in the morning to all these people. So finally, we make a reservation at the Hyatt, and we arrive there. And at, like, I don't know, there was a, by the way, the party was very nice. There was music, there was food. Everybody at that point was nice. I was forgiving people for forgetting me. And I mean, so we get to this place and all these other young couples are there. It's the October 11th weekend, whatever. A lot of people get married. And some of them were his students. And they're going, Professor, what are you doing here? And he looks at me and he can't, he can't think of a thing to say. So, okay. We get up the next morning, and we start to leave the hotel, and we go to pay the bill, and the young lady behind the counter goes, Professor, uh, your room was really dirty, wasn't it? And he goes, no. And she says, yes, it was. It's free. Boom. And so we didn't even pay for that room. And, and to end things, though, I got home, back to the house with my whole family and everything, greeted at the door, and my three-year-old said, Mommy, I wet the bed last night. And I said, I know, I'm home. Can we please have to the stage, Terrence Noonan. Yes. I slipped his name in and he wasn't ready. Um, he normally, my husband usually tells a story every week that we come, but it's our story, so this is my first time telling. I'm a horrible storyteller. I have wonderful stories, but I'm, it's, it's very difficult to tell them. You really need to know how to start, do the middle thing, and then wrap it up. <laughs> so bear with me. But I will say it's the best story of my whole life, so I don't mind telling this one. Um, Terrence and I have been together going on 14 years and we waited many, many years to be together. I was raising a family in East Ham and had my career and he had a child and, and his career in, uh, outside of Boston and we both had parents with health issues and so we would commute 100 miles 
all the time to, to be together. Sometimes we meet at the bridge for an hour or two and then go back, and this has gone on for many years. Finally, we got to the point where we could get married, like legit. <laughs> and it, how we got to there is another story, but we went to Boston City Hall to elope, and we screwed up the paperwork, so they turned us away. And we came back a few more days later, thought we had everything in line, they said, and he's a lawyer, I mean, you know, like he should know this stuff. So we got there again, they turned us away again. And then the third time was our charm. And actually this is my third marriage, so that was the biggest charm of my life. But, um, but we got married actually four times. He was my third husband, but the, um, the only, the, the love of my life. So we eloped, had this phenomenal wedding at uh, just the two of us at Boston City Hall, and we went out to, in Dorchester, um, where was the name of the, uh, the um, Irish bar? Banshee. Banshee. We had a, it was an amazing night. But then we did a, so that was the first wedding. That was perfect. The, the woman that did our ceremony, civil ceremony, was amazing. It was perfect and amazing and wonderful. But then we did a family and friends gig. We did a family and friends wedding in, um, in Orleans, and it was so much fun. We made it up on the spot, but we had about 150 people, and it was like anybody that wants to be, because we have four kids in their 20s, and we have a 16-year-old now, but we, at the time, it was like any, we had so many young people in our lives, so we said, anybody who wants to be a bridesmaid can be a bridesmaid, anybody who wants to be a groomsman. So we had tons of, of uh, people in our wedding party and all kinds of young girls, flower girls, and, and uh, it was just so much fun. It was very loose. We had a bonfire with hundreds of pallets that burned all night long, and it was, it was great. Um, the young people that went to our wedding are still talking about it, and many of them are modeling their weddings after it. It was so loose, we made it up literally like within a week. But then the third wedding, I, I've been a member of Couchsurfing Network for a long time, pretty much since the inception, and I've had um, over 100 people come stay with me from all around the world here. And I had one in particular that I was very close to, and we had many talks long into the night when she stayed with me, and we talked about our, the loves of our life, and we said, if, well, if we ever get married, we've made a promise or pact to, to go to each other's weddings. So she was from... Um, um, Austria, and so, so when it was sort of improbable, but we made a promise, and so we'd gotten eloped in in July. We had our family and friends wedding in September, but then she called me. I had asked her to come to that that wedding in September, but she couldn't come. She said, "My boyfriend is taking me to Paris, and I think he's going to propose," which she did. So. She, called, she, she emailed me shortly after that, and she said, can you come to our wedding? We're getting married in Vegas. You promised. So I said, of course we will. So we'll come to Vegas, and we'll, get, we'll be at your wedding. She said, you'll be the only people in attendance. And I, so we said, well, then we'll get married again, so you can be at our wedding like we promised. <laughs> so, so we did. We had a, an amazing wedding. Uh, we, they got married at, the, at Las Vegas City Hall. Terrence stole some flowers from the hotel, and... I think he stole a napkin, like something borrowed from the cloth napkin, and, and I think a fork was in there as well. And then we went to our wedding, we had our wedding at the uh, Little Chapel in the West, the oldest, where Judy Garland got married, the oldest chapel in, uh, in Las Vegas, the first one. So we got married too, so then we made our promise. We each attended each other's weddings. And then... <laughs> Then we went to that hotel that has roller coasters and rides on the very top of it. It's like, I don't know, 100 stories tall, and they have roller coasters. And it was very, very titillating, very exciting. We were, had a few drinks, and we were having a lot of fun. 
And then we met these people from Cirque du Soleil and we stayed up until seven in the morning drinking tequila with the Cirque du Soleil. It's a weird thing in Vegas. If, if you've ever been there, you don't know what time it is. And when you come out, you have no idea that it's like sunlight. <laughs> you're, you know, you're still carrying your tequila. So in the morning when we were leaving, we, we was a rough morning. We had a couple hours sleep where we have to catch the shuttle. And they were so sweet. They got up to say goodbye to us, but it was their real wedding night. So they got up to say goodbye, and we had all these big hugs in the parking lot. Our, our luggage was already on the shuttle, and then the shuttle left without us while we were having this emotional goodbye. And because we had so much fun, it was so great. So we did that, and then we're like, we free, like, shit, the, the, the luggage is gone, and the bus is gone, and the plane is going to be gone. So we uh, called them up, and it took, it took 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes to get the shuttle to come back for us. They came back. And we did the whole goodbye thing again, hugging each other, goodbye, 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 and the shuttle left again. So um, <laughs> we were so lucky that the shuttle, I mean, we watched it going. They didn't, they didn't even wait two minutes, they were gone. So we had to wait another 10 minutes, but we did somehow make that plane. We've missed a lot of them, but that one we made. And then, uh, and I have to make this shorter, but um, they, they emailed us again in the spring and they said, we want to go to um, New Orleans, we want to get married again. So we met them. So we met them in New Orleans, and we had the most amazing wedding. We got married to get. We uh, we got married in Saint Rock Cemetery. I don't know if you ever know anybody know where Saint Rock Cemetery is, but people leave prosthetics and um, um, eye, like fake eyeballs and crutches and um, fake arms, and you have this whole um, sanctuary with all of this donated prosthetics. Well, you know, to pray for healing. So we stole some flowers from the cemetery and then we went in the chapel and we each did our own ceremony. And ours was wonderful, but theirs was so beautiful. It was all in German and I, we didn't understand a word, but we cried. It was the most beautiful ceremony I've ever heard. It was lovely. So um, we're working on the fifth wedding. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys for signing up over intermission. For those who did, our first storyteller is Danny. Welcome, Danny, to the stage. Hi, I'm Danny, Danielle. Uh, so I'll be talking about my godfather, Reed. Uh, the first thing you should know about him is he's extremely wealthy. And that's, you know, not to brag about him or anything like that. That's just to illustrate the second point, which is he is the most indecisive person I've ever met. And I say this because he is one of the partners at a law firm, but he has still, he's still living in the same tiny three-room apartment that he's lived in for maybe 15 years. And he still drives the same 1990s or 1980s Saab, which is the most beat-up, disgusting-looking car you've ever seen. One door on each side, you can't even get into the backseat anymore. Um, but we thought, you know, maybe his ways would change when he finally met the woman he was going to marry named Sandra Jew. And her name is very important, so remember it. Um, we thought he would change his ways and maybe she'd be good for him and she's a very brilliant woman. Maybe she would, you know, force him to finally move into something nicer and, you know, accommodate his lifestyle. No. And we thought after, after you know, four years and five years of them dating that they would finally get married. But no, nine years passed when finally we got an email from them saying, we're getting married. 
And my mom goes, oh, about fucking time. Jesus Christ. So in this span of time, uh, Reed has two brothers, both of whom uh, got married. And they're part of a very large Jewish family. And I don't know if any of you guys are Jewish, but well, I do know if you guys are Jewish, uh, as we've heard. But one of the expectations uh, of Jewish mothers is that their sons marry nice Jewish girls. And both of Reed's brothers had failed in this. They both married, I believe, Catholic girls, both of them nice, uh, but not Jewish. So after nine years, when Reed finally announced that he was going to marry this woman who is not Jewish, she's Asian, um, you know, his mother was very disappointed until Reed's brother, as his best man, stood up at their wedding party and said, you know, Reed, it's been nine fucking years, but you finally did it, and you finally made mom proud. One of the Feigelboys finally married a Jew. Can we please welcome to the stage, Empka. Hi, Emka, self-admitted weirdo, artist, whatever, and um, I'm single. I've never been married. I don't think, well, I know I've never been engaged. I might have been proposed to once. This is going to be R-rated. I'll try to keep it clean. Um, let's see. Well, third grade, no, before third grade, Bobby Glassford across the street from me started this whole wary of boys things because he threw a rock at me and his parents made him apologize with candy and flowers and we sat on the kitchen floor at my house on the dirty linoleum and picked out the candy together and I felt weird about that because he didn't really like me. Why was he giving me candy? He threw a rock at me. Third grade, I held hands with Matt I'm basically giving you my relationship resume. Maybe together we can figure out why. Oh, Matt was so cute. Oh, my God. And at the end of the museum field trip, the teacher said, you don't have to be holding hands anymore. So that was good. I think he liked me. But I also think as the youngest of five and super shy as a kid, with an awesome dad and a really mean grandmother who lived with us, I think I may have been undiagnosed cusp something. And can't read cues. I always like a guy, but I can never tell when a guy likes me. So I've been doing some Googling and Facebooking, and all these guys are coming out of the woodwork. I had such a crush on you, but I was so intimidated by me. I'm like, what? So. Not reading the cues, I guess I missed a lot of opportunities. Oh, also in third grade, back in the 60s and 70s, or maybe I'm just naive, if you called someone a fag, it was like you're a weirdo loser. So, oh no, I'm sorry, this was sixth grade. <laughs> We're jumping ahead. Um, I get a phone call and my father hands the phone to me. No one ever calls me because I have like zero friends. Hello? Yeah, this is Gary. Will you go out with me? I'm sure it's a joke. It's not real, right? Me, zero friends, eat lunch alone in the cafeteria, sometimes hide, but then I met a bunch of other people who did the same thing and whoo, life changed. So I'm like, no, why not? 
I regret this to this day. Because you're a fag, click. I had to take power and take control because this, I thought it was Debbie Katz, a girl at a sleepover party making fun of me. Couldn't believe that it was real. So there's that. Then, ah, oh, well, my grandmother, let me just tell you about her. Rep Bouget, we called her Rep. You kids are rotten. Margie's kids are so sweet. They're like a little ray of sunshine. Rep Bouget. And to me, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. Talk like an animal, a witch. And I think for a woman of her age, witch meant B-I-T-C-H. And I think I was just too interesting and creative for her to handle, and possibly that borderline cusp, undiagnosed thing. So I actually looked up repugé in Lithuanian. It means like forest toad. So probably like a really, really bad insult. She called us, she said that to all of us. Like, oh God, we're stuck with rep tonight. So let's fast forward to when I was 14 and I started using my sister's fake ID because I loved music. My dad, because I was the youngest, you can get away with everything, would drive me into Boston in the 70s to see bands. He knew I had a fake ID. He'd drop me off, go get a drink somewhere, come back and pick me up again. And that was when life changed. And I could talk to people about music and hang out with other cool weirdos. And then I met the boy from France at the Bradford Hotel Ballroom at the special show. And I traded my cool Tom Petty Damn the Torpedoes button for a Sex Pistols button. And now I wish I still had the Damn the Torpedoes button. And he was there for the summer and I had my first summer fling romance. So I was no longer 16 and never kissed. And then there was a series of ADD short year and a half relationships. But I always get to this point now when I'm dating, dreading, until today, dreading the, well, what's your number? How many people have you been with? Have you ever been married? No, this is who I am, okay? I'm super picky. And the worst breakup ever, I'll leave with that, was um, the boyfriend, the one who I think proposed to me. We're in my little apartment in Austin. We're going at it. We're doing it. And he says, ah, ah, basically telling me he's about to arrive. Let's get married. Oh my God, did that count? Was that real? Oh, I can't, I can't take that for real. Oh, well, set a date, well, this, well, that, blah, 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 blah. Oh, my God, I think I'm going to get married. And then maybe three days later, I'm driving him to his job because he didn't have a car. So this is probably all a good thing. Uh, listen, my cousin's getting married next week. Oh, I'm going to meet the family. Uh, can I borrow your car for the wedding? What? So told him to get out at the corner somewhere and drove off. And since then, I have had some very nice relationships, but still not married. Nothing further. Thank you. Okay. Next to the stage, I give a round of applause for our next storyteller, Terrence Noonan. Terrence. So this is going to be very earnest, which I'm not used to because, you know, it's tough to be earnest um, for a bunch of reasons. One, because it's very exposing, and secondly, because I always hear that line about how the worst poetry in the world is the most earnest. And uh, so my wife, Jennifer, told the story of various and sundries of our weddings. And this is kind of like the Hiroshima Mon Amour 
take Seven Samurai because I was actually there for all of those weddings. Um, but I came at it from a from a different perspective when when it started, as most human stories do, um, in vitro. And then just moments after that, I was in a baptismal font at the J-Zoo in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, if anybody knows that. And for the next few years, because church is the easiest way to have permanent babysitters, I spent a lot of time there and doing catechism and things like that. And it was very Jesuitical. And I decided before the age of five that I was going to marry Jesus. Um, and because there are all these stories about people, and I wasn't, because when you're young, you don't do that discriminatory thing between gender identification, like, well, only women are marrying Jesus. I was reading these stories, and there were these people, and they were marrying Jesus. And I remember talking to my dad about it. We were, we were living in Milwaukee, and uh, I was like... Butch, because that's his name, and um, that's what he always wanted me to call him. And uh, so I was like, Butch, I'm gonna. When I grow up, I want to marry Jesus. And at the time, what I remember him saying was, "That's great, Terrence. That sounds really good." In retrospect, everything slows down, and it's kind of like frozen and slowly melting amber. Amber, and I can see his face. And what he's thinking is, don't dissuade him, because then he'll leave the church. Let him continue to want to marry Jesus so that I can continue to study. And so he said, hey, that's great. And then, you know, I'm reading Barton's Lives of the Saints, and I'm doing all those things, and I, I want to dedicate myself to Jesus, and I want to marry him. And all of the iconography is very, you know, scintillating and titillating, to be perfectly honest. Um, and he's, he's like a superhero. You know, it's like marrying Superman. The guy can do anything. And so I had found out other people could marry him, so he's kind of like a Mormon Catholic guy. And, and he's, he's polyamorous. And, and I want to marry him because he can turn water into wine. He can walk on water. He can do all these things that the Wonder Twins had only, you know, hadn't even thought of. And at some point, it became clear that... that um, that that wasn't going to happen. I believe, uh, I've used the term recently in a little thing I wrote for, for a friend, anchorites, like anchorists, where you disavow the whole world and you go and you live in a cell and you, you take kind of the, the corpus of Jesus into you and you live in a cell. Um, but only women were allowed. And this is like at nine, and I realized that I can't do that. I'm, I don't have the right parts. I don't have the right fluids running through my body. I don't have a supply of, of eggs, which apparently Jesus wants, um, which is weird. And so I was crushed, and I didn't know what to do. Um, so I got involved with girls, and that seemed like a much better sort of pathway. Um, and, but but through, that, through that whole thing... You know, I kept thinking about Jesus and marrying Jesus, and I, and I kind of drilled down on, like, why did I want to marry Jesus? And I was like, because he had these superpowers, but they all seemed to flow from his mind, because every time he would do something just incredible, he would then come out with this, like, kick-ass, pithy statement that just, like, summed up the whole thing. Like, boom! 
I'm out. Jesus. You know, it's like, and so I was like, then it became, you know, and then to, to borrow a phrase, you know, where, where are weddings bred in the mind or in the head? So I first went to the, I mean, in the, in the where are weddings, what, what's the phrase? Where is fancy bread, in the heart or in the head? So I transposed into where are weddings bread in the heart or in the head. And first I went to the head, and I married this incredibly wonderful but just totally cerebral woman um, in Alabama. And, um, and that, that was just a complete and utter mistake. And, but we, you know, we, we stayed friends and I realized, and, and we're, we're still friends to this day, but that wasn't it. There, there needed to be this kind of perfect confluence between the mind and the body, because Jesus would, would say things, you know, coming straight, straight from the cerebellum and boom, and wow, that happened fast. And so then, the Hiroshima Montemore part is, I was involved with the Robert Reich campaign, and I was organizing the south part of Massachusetts, and I was in Cambridge, and this woman walked in. And I remember thinking at the time, like, if I was ever gonna dedicate my life to another human being, it would be that woman. And I had heard her speak and she was so studious and she was so smart and she asked these perspicacious questions and she was like, just everything that you could possibly want from a female version of Jesus that later, later, Everybody I knew would say, and I apologize to the kids, so I'm going to put it in a colloquialism. Everybody would ask me, so are you still stupin' Mother Teresa? And I'd be like, yeah, I am, and it's really, really, really good. And so 15 years later, after we got married with all the midgets and the contortionists and the people who were breathing fire in Vegas, we got kicked out of the casino because my wife was parading around in the fountain. Um, and after the plate of eyeballs and fake legs, and after I had screwed up all the paperwork because I'm an attorney in Boston, and after you're all invited to my, our very next wedding, which is the fifth one, um, the true love is still there. And so what I have to say is nils desperandum, because in fact, weddings are bred in both the heart and the head. And I mix that up, it's the other way around. It's hard in the head. Thank you. Next to the stage is Susan Murray. So, I was sitting in a gas station in Truckee, California, and my boyfriend had gone inside to get a snack. He came out and he casually tossed a glossy bridal guide onto the seat and said, you know, we could get married in Reno. And I laughed. I laughed because we had been engaged for two and a half years. And for the first six months of our engagement, I did the thing that people who are engaged do, plan, tried to plan and think of a place where we should get married and should we get married in Boston, where I was from, or in California, where he was from, or in New York, where we had met and we now lived. And I looked at a few sites and things like that, but I never got any response from him or any input. Should we have a big wedding or small wedding or this or that? So I laughed and um, 
he kind of drove off. We had been in California to spend Christmas with his family. They had given us this old Honda Accord and we were gonna drive it back across the country back to New York. So a few hours later, we were in Reno and he said, let's just go check out one of these, you know, chapels where you can get married. And I said, okay. So we rolled up to the Chapel of the Bells and we went inside and the woman said, are you guys truckers? <laughs> what? What are you driving? Honda Accord? So we asked information, how do we get married? And she explained that in order to get married, you'd have to go to City Hall and you'd have to get a marriage license. And we said, okay, you know, we can do that. And she explained that it's open till midnight because apparently there are a lot of people in Reno who want to get married at midnight. So we went down to the city hall and he parked the car in front and he said, okay, let's go in. And I said, no, no, no. He said, what, come on, let's go in. I said, no, no, I, I don't think I can do this. He said, come on, come on, we can do this. I said, no. I said, you know, I saw a sign back there for a psychic. I think we should go talk to her and I should ask her what we should do, if we should get married. So he said, okay. So we drove in a woman's house, but there was a big pink neon psychic sign on the lawn. We walked up, we knocked on the door. Nobody came. We could hear like screaming and all this stuff going on inside. Knocked on the door again. This woman opens the door. She's kind of harried. She's got a baby on her hip. She has a toddler here. There's kids in the background screaming. And she says, yeah? We say, we'd like a psychic reading. She said, I'm not open. I said, but I need to know if I'm supposed to get married. She slammed the door. Sorry. So this guy, I'll just call him um, Alex. So Alex <laughs> says, okay, let's go back to City Hall. And I say, okay. So we go back to City Hall, parks the car, says, let's go in. I say, flip a coin. So heads, we get married, tails, we don't. He flips it, heads. I say, flip it again. <laughs> Two hours later, no exaggeration of flipping the coin, it's 10 to midnight. He says, we got to go in. We only have till midnight to get this license. So then it occurs to me, I don't have to get married if I get the license. It's just a piece of paper we actually have to do it. There's no harm in getting the license. So we go in, and there's a long line of people, because a lot of people in Reno want to get married at midnight. And you know, there's people in front of us, and the woman turns to me and is like, first time? Yeah. There's a guy there with two women, because he had been there the week before with one of them, and you have to pay $35 for the license. And he decided he didn't want to marry that woman, but now he wanted to marry this woman, but he didn't want to pay the fee again. So he wanted to know if he could just switch the name. So we go, we, we get the license, and we take off for the Chapel of the Bells. We go to the Chapel of the Bells, and there's a woman at the desk, and this is the day, again, no cell phones, no whatever, so she's got a typewriter, and she's going to fill out the form with our names and our birth dates and the day we get married. So Alex is sitting there with this woman, and I go off to this waiting room. And so to continue the theme, the waiting room is like a funeral home. It's sterile and it 
it's air-conditioned and everything's perfect and it's just that awful smell of flowers and I'm suffocating and all of a sudden I look around and I see my out. There's a door with a big exit sign over it. So I go out the door. Alex is over there filling out the form with the woman at the front office and she very calmly says, the bride has left the building. And he says, oh, no, no, she's, she's in the waiting room. She's in the waiting room. And she very calmly again says, the bride has left the building and casually points up to the security camera that they have in. And they both turn around and look at the security camera and watch me run for my life across the parking lot. Storyteller to the stage, Charlotte Whitker. Okay, so um, every kid with separated parents' worst nightmare is that they're the reason their parents got divorced. But every kid whose parents get remarried, biggest dream is that they're the reason their parents get divorced, their new parents get divorced. <laughs> and, um, and so this was me in, I think I was in kindergarten when my mom started dating um, her new um, boyfriend. Not a fan. And... Um, it took away from me. My mom didn't pay as much attention to me. I just didn't like him. And so I, in, I think I was in third grade when they tell me they're going to get married. Everyone in the car cheers. Everyone, we're driving home from Maine, and everyone's like, yes, that's so exciting. I'm sitting there, like, bawling my eyes out, like, this sucks. My life is awful. And so then, but we get to go to Florida for the wedding. So I'm like, okay, well, at least I get a vacation out of it. It's my first vacation I've ever been on. And so I'm super stoked about, like, seeing all the manatees and all the, like, Florida life. I'm so excited. I get there and have time in my life, and then it comes the day of the wedding. And... I'm telling you, I really didn't like this guy, so I'm trying to do anything I can to make the wedding not happen. So um, my first trick was I, I took my dress that I was supposed to wear, it was really cute, it was white, and I took it and I threw it in the mud outside <laughs> to try and like ruin it so that maybe I wouldn't have to at least go. And so um, my mom got the stains out of that. So trick number two was I, I can't believe I did this, I, I cut off my hair so that it was like really ugly. I cut it uneven and like, dis like I had beautiful hair when I was little. It was so, it was long and nice and I just, I mangled it. And um, my mom had just finished hair school so she finished it, she fixed it no problem. And so um, this, I think this was the best trick I did. I, uh, I packed my suitcase that I had. We're, we're on an island, we're on North Captiva. There's nowhere to go. I, so I packed my suitcase and I, I book it. I just started walking. I run in with my suitcase through this island, and like, what am I supposed to do? I'm eight years old. And um, so my mom calls like island security, and they like bring me back in a golf cart. And um, <laughs> and so I'm like, wait, there's a golf cart. So we have our own golf cart at the house we're staying in. And I'm like, I've driven a go kart. I could do this. So I um, put my suitcase right back in the golf cart, and I take off in the golf cart. <laughs> And um, needless to say, my mom, she wasn't thrilled with me by the end of the day. And um, it comes like 7 o'clock, and it's time to go to the beach for their wedding. It was just us, and um, he had a daughter, and then my brother and my mom. And I'm sitting there, and oh, my God, you should see the pictures. Every single one, I'm like, <laughs> with my, like, gross short hair and my dr 
dress had a few stains on it, and um, we go out to dinner after, and I, um, I'm like, okay, well, now they're married, but I don't have to stay with them, so I try to escape through the kitchen, and um, I mean, I was, a, I was a crazy child. I was all over the walls, and I mean, you couldn't turn around for a second, because I'd be like on the kitchen table or like swinging from a chandelier. It was ridiculous, and so um, eventually, we came home from the vacation, Finally got them to separate, and uh, one of my biggest successes, so, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian, and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.